This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, a postdoc at Duke University and the host for this episode. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Paul Naylor about his new book, From Rebels to Rulers, Writing Legitimacy in the Early Sokoto State, which was published by James Curry in 2021. Dr. Naylor is currently a cataloger of West African manuscripts at the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library, Minnesota. He has previously taught at Loyola University, Chicago, and Tulane University. Dr. Naylor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Um, So to start, I'd like to give you a chance to kind of introduce yourself. Um, How did you become interested in history kind of more broadly? Uh, And then how did you come to focus on the pre-colonial history of Sokoto? Um, And sort of specifically, how did you decide to kind of hone in on the the kind of more earlier years of the Sokoto state? Yeah, sure. So I I got my BA in Arabic from University of London, SOAS. And after that, I didn't really pursue academia for a while. I was in uh, media and translation. So mostly like Arabic documentary, documentary films in Arabic um, that I would do subtitles and stuff for. So really sort of loosely based on history, but more on the Arabic language side. And then I applied for um, collaborative doctoral partnership scheme. So this is a UK scheme that uh, links up universities with research institutions, so like libraries or museums. So in my case, it was University of Birmingham and the British Library, and and it already had a title, Islam in West Africa. So I could choose within that, but I was kind of that I was kind of um, you know introduced to that through the through the scheme. So my supervisor Benedetta Rossi focuses mainly on the Hausa region. Um, at the British Library, I was I was cataloging their collection of manuscripts from West Africa, mostly from northern Nigeria. Um, and Sogodo was the largest uh, state in terms of like the written heritage that that exists. So it all it all kind of logically came together um, like that. And so when I started reading through, you know, what had been written about Sogodo already, and there's there's a lot. Um, I saw that most of it focused on you know the historical events and the chronology of the early state, but there'd been very little engagement with the manuscripts themselves. They'd just been used as kind of primary sources in order to tell this events-based history. And it was clear that these intellectual documents spoke to each other. They changed, uh, you know, over the first 30 years. And I I wanted to look into that um, in my my, uh, thesis work that later became this book. 
Um, so as sort of mentioned, you know, the topic of your book is the, the pre-colonial uh, Sokoto state. Um, so for people who are maybe listening who know little to nothing about this topic, um, can you just sort of sketch out the broad strokes uh, for them? So kind of, you know, where are we talking about, how long it lasted, the kind of basic political structure and so on? Yeah, sure. So the, the movement began in the, the Hausa kingdoms, so Hausa land, which is in present day northern Nigeria. And so these were uh, small uh, states governed by uh, kings, the about seven of them, uh, and they, they gradually incorporated Islam into their identity uh, over time. And so Usman was actually uh, the tutor to one of these Hausa rulers, uh, the ruler of Gobir. Uh, but he later he became known as a kind of traveling preacher and teacher who began to call for a radical reform of, uh, of society. And so Sokoto, uh, what we call today, Sokoto was founded in 1804, after Usman declared uh, jihad, a religious war, against the rulers of the house estates. And this led to a series of rebellions um, across house land and across uh, northern Nigeria, um, present-day northern Nigeria, by uh, Fulani. So he identified as, as Fulani, which is one of the, the groups, uh, ethnic groups of West Africa, but also, uh, you know, other people. And the wars destroyed uh, the entirety of the house estates and really changed the geopolitical landscape of the whole Sahel uh, region. So Usman, and then after him, his son, Mohammed Bello, uh, tried to kind of unite all of these disparate territories together into a single theocracy um, governed by, by themselves as Amir al-Mu'minin, or commander of the faithful. And so Sokoto was constructed in 1810 as a capital city, but, you know, most of the early rulers spent their time in these frontier regions of um, the Sokoto state, uh, these kind of frontier fortress towns and government was extremely decentralized so the old house estates kept their capitals they would just had an emir that was appointed by the emir al-mu'mini in sokoto and pledged allegiance to him but other other than that they were more or less um independent and also lots of regions that were not part of these original house estates had emirships created uh, you know by by sokoto so it was it was very decentralized um the sokoto state lasted around 100 years until 1903, when Britain annexed the, the territory and created the Protectorate of Northern Nigeria. So although the British maintained and actually um, strengthened much of these government structures that that, um, that emerged during the, 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 the those hundred years, they remained more or less as they were under uh, what the British called a native authority under the doctrine of indirect rule. So today there's still a Sultan of Sokoto, there are still uh, plenty of regional emirs, which along with other traditional rulers play an important role in domestic politics um, today. And this has had very important consequences for the historiography of Sokoto, which I'm sure we'll talk to talk about later on. Um, another bit of background that I think might be helpful is to kind of go over a couple of terms that you use. Um, so the first is uh, the Furiawa. Kind of what what is that? What does that represent? Right. Yeah, the Furiawa is a term, I mean, adopted by myself and a few other scholars, you know, just really in an attempt to show that Usman Damfodio, his younger brother, Abdullahi Damfodio, and Mohammed Bello, the son of Usman, are, are linked genealogically, but not necessarily in terms of, of ideology, because others have used the term triumvirate or, or something like this, which suggests that they somehow governed, uh, you know, collectively. Um, and so I tried to show that, look, you know, there were lots of divisions between these three men, uh, you know, over the course of the, 
the early history of Sokoto in terms of the, the best way to govern the territory. So Fudiawa was my attempt to kind of create a almost like a family name. So Hausa Wa is, is for is for plurals of, of, of ethnic and social groups. So Fudiawa is like an attempt to, to give them a, a family name and not suggest any other kind of um, ideological adherence. Yeah. So and then second, you know, if people have heard of Sokoto, they've probably heard it referred to as the Sokoto Caliphate. Um, but for the most part, you reject the term caliphate and instead go with Sokoto State. So kind of why is that an important distinction for you? It's, it's important because it, in the Islamic legal tradition, you know, the, the caliphate or khilafah suggests this kind of uh, global representation of, of the Muslim ummah. And, and it has to be bestowed by somebody upon uh, a caliph, you know, so it has to be given to them by a previous caliph or through a genealogical link to the to the early Muslim community, to, to Muhammad himself. And so Usman, the, I mean, the main reason is that Usman himself very explicitly said, you know, I'm not uh, a caliph. And in fact, tried to ally himself with the various caliphates that were in the region at the time. So whereas the Ottomans, through their representatives in Tripoli and in uh, Egypt, or also the Alawite dynasty of Morocco, who claimed uh, to be caliphs because of their their genealogical link with Prophet Muhammad. And so it was only really later in the 1820s onwards when Muhammad Bello claimed that Usman had been a caliph. But again, this was a really specific debate between him and Ahmed Lobo, who was trying to create his own uh, kind of caliphate in the Mopti region, of, of Mali. So it was a very controversial term because if you claimed that you were a caliph, you also wanted all of the the local Muslim leaders and rulers to, to, to pay allegiance to you. And as far as I can tell, this, the term Sokoto Caliphate was, was created in the 1960s by Murray Last um, after the publication of his famous book, The Sokoto Caliphate, 1967, uh, which remains a very important and well-read uh, work for Sokoto's early history. And I think he chose this title either simply because it sounded very impressive and it was the kind of impressive pre-colonial history that was required by northern political elites in Nigeria at that time um, as they sought to create an independent country based on their own genealogical links to Sokoto's founding father and they envisioned that it would be a country led by these, these northern elites. And so it's these kind of complex political contexts that I'm trying to talk about in, in the rest of the book. All right. So now that we're sort of grounded a bit, let's get into the book. Um, so the heart of the book kind of begins in the 1790s when Usman Danfodio, you know, the founder of the Sokoto state, is sort of producing writings that are part of what you term discourses of dissent that kind of lay the ground for the jihad that will kind of ultimately bring about the Sokoto state. Um, so what are kind of some of the key parts of these discourses of dissent? Yeah, sure. And before I talk about the, the discourse of, of dissent specifically, I, I want to first kind of bring some context as to how, uh, you know, historians usually frame revolutionary Muslim social movements in, in West Africa and, and in fact other places. You know, so the story is there are these reformers seeking to return an orthodox Islam to the region uh, where, which is dominated by the syncretic practices or the kind of debased practices of, of ruling elites. So this is exactly the story uh, that, of course, the jihadists uh, told them. So the historians are just kind of, aside from this, the problematic aspects of this, just recycling the, 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 victor, the victor narrative, um, 
fixating on the concept of Islamic orthodoxy uh, really obscures the what to my mind is one of the most important tools of legitimization, which is changing the narrative of what orthodox means. So in line with with, the, with your political needs, and that's exactly what, what the 40 hour did. So at first, um, you know, they said, look, uh, there is this orthodox Islam, which, which we follow, uh, and an adulterated uh, inferior Islam, which your opponents follow. And so the only way to achieve uh, justice in this life and also to fulfill uh, God's will for a perfect Muslim society is to overthrow these rulers and, and follow us. Otherwise, your own, you know, we might start to question whether you, you yourself are a good Muslim if you don't want to follow this orthodox Islam. So it's a very effective tool, uh, really weaponized by this idea of takfir, which is that, you know, if labeling other Muslims, non-Muslims or apostates from the faith based on, on their actions. And so these ideas were not new to, to Houseland in the 19th century. They've been used for centuries by weak actors to overthrow uh, seemingly powerful political elites. You know, ever since really the ulama split or the, the scholars split from the caliph in the very early history of Islam. So this is one element of the discourse of dissent really derived from these Islamic legal arguments about takfir and about obedience or non-obedience to a non-Muslim ruler. But it was also combined with, with other elements that had success at a more popular level. So such as claims that Usman was the uh, the Mahdi, the Islamic Messiah that is expected to come at the end of time. So the idea that the world is going to end soon, the idea that he'd met directly with Abdul Qadir Jilani, who's the founder of the Qadiriya Sufi order, which is that was the most popular in the region at the time. And so he's kind of bypassed the hierarchies of, 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 of Baraka that existed in the region. And so you have to go directly to Usman if you want to receive all these spiritual insights. And so there are all these elements work together to create this really uh, kind of quick overturning of the political order. You also discuss in this chapter how, you know, there was some disagreement um, during the early 1800s within the discourses of dissent. Uh, and so I realize it will be hard Uh, for us to cover kind of all of this, um, but kind of maybe provide one or two examples of sort of the Fodawa kind of disagreeing. Yeah, so, I mean, the example that I can think of is uh, is the Mahdi, like I I just talked about. So Osman did not deny that he was the Mahdi or that um, all these similarities his followers pointed out between he and and the Mahdi. He did not uh, say that these were untrue. Uh, He also... Uh, followed uh, predictions that the end of the world would come uh, in 1200 of the Hijri calendar. So that's in the 1790s, right at the time when he started to militate against the Hausa. Um, so he cultivated this millenarian uh, fervor. Uh, his, his younger brother, on the other hand, uh, was really not, not a fan of, of this. And he said very clearly that he didn't think that Usman was the Mahdi and that only God knows who the Mahdi is and who... Um, and and when he will he will arrive and so you have you know Osman and Bello saying uh, look the Mahdi is going to come very soon and then even within the jihadist camp you have his brother saying well actually that's that's not true and many people wrote to to Abdullahi and to Usman asking well which which is it then you know so it, it created a lot of problems. Hmm. 
All right. So the first part of your book's title, uh, Rebels to Rulers, reflects the fact that after the Furiawa had sort of more or less taken over, they needed to shift from the position of sort of critiquing the existing power structure to then kind of legitimating their rule and effectively leading. Um, And part of what helped them accomplish this was sort of what you term discourses of moderation. So what are some of the kind of the key parts of the discourses of moderation? Yes, so so you can imagine that, you know, given all of the elements I discussed before, you know, this is a kind of recipe for this constant anarchy, because whoever takes uh, control could then themselves be labeled uh, a bad ruler or... um, a bad Muslim and and uh, or an apostate and, and overthrown again. So, you know, they really had to, to change the, the, the discourse they started before against the House of Kings and establish a stable system of government with, with them at the head of it. And so they borrowed a lot from the House of Kings uh, before them. And so they introduced a lot of things which before they had suggested were, were non-Muslim, um, such as, you know, the kind of uh, large court life and titles and all these things that were probably talk about later with the hassification of, of Sokoto. But, um, you know, basically what they said is, look, now we have orthodox rule. Orthodox Islam is what you have now. So any attempt to to rebel against that uh, is not justified, is in fact fitna, or you're, you're creating anarchy. And so uh, when people use the same arguments that, oh, well, the Furiawa have now become these tyrannical uh, rulers, they said, look, the best way is to obey the strongest ruler, even if he rules contrary to Islam, because this is the lesser of two evils. So this was a, a kind of legal maxim they used again and again, which, of course, they didn't apply a couple of decades before when we're talking about the House of Kings. Uh, and so, again, you know, this, this wasn't a new argument. You know, it had been employed, this lesser of two evils concept had been employed um, to recognize since the Abbasid period that there wasn't really a centralized caliphal power anymore, and there were going to be these, these regional governments that, that uh, claimed all sorts of powers and authorities uh, that was not um, written in the Quran or, or other documents. And so that's the legal side, just like with the, with the discourse of dissent, there was a legal side derived from Islamic law. But, you know, on these other two, two concepts, which I call in the book Kashf and, and, um, and Nasab, so, you know, Usman said, well, okay, actually, uh, I did not, I'm not the Mahdi. Um, we don't know when he's going to come, um, but he will come soon. So they wanted to control this Mahdist, uh, you know, they kind of utilize this dynamic force, but but not have it be so anarchic. So they said, he's going to come, but he's, he's not going to come yet. And Bello actually said, he's coming, but in 1863. So essentially leaving his, his, his kind of... Uh, successes to deal with this problem of the millenarianism that they'd created um, a couple of decades before. Um, and, and likewise, with, with, uh, in terms of their, their ethnic group, the Turope Fulani, you know, previously they'd said, oh, we are the ancestors of Arab conquerors in the region. We have a rightful uh, place in, in Hausa land. Now they said, no, you know, the Fulani are just one of many African peoples of the region as they sought to try to integrate non-Fulani back into their government. So we see all these kind of changes happening at the same time, which I try to call moderation. And again, just like we sort of saw with the discourses of dissent, you know, there's plenty of disagreement um, within the discourses of moderation. Um, so what's one example of this that you found kind of particularly interesting? 
there's there's um an interesting legal concept that you see cropping up in Usman's work in the 18 10, 1815 or something, when they, they're just trying to establish the centralized government. And it's called Inkar al-Haram, which basically is like, you cannot declare haram, you cannot outlaw anything which another scholar has permitted at some point in time. And so we can imagine, you know, if you read around a bit, most things have been permitted, you know, that are not explicitly against Islam, have been permitted by some scholar at some point. And so this allowed... Usman to excuse all sorts of things that happened in the jihad, which were not following uh, Muslim law. So you can imagine, you know, you know, stealing and killing Muslims who were remained in the conflict zone and did not clearly side with the jihadists, uh, wearing gold and silver, displaying all sorts of luxurious clothes that they'd taken from the house of rulers, you know, all sorts of things. And so for each of them, he found an example in the hadith or in Islamic law that permitted these actions in very specific circumstances. And so this demonstrated how knowledgeable he was in Islamic law, and it also preserved his authority in the eyes of his followers to say, look, this wasn't anarchy, you know, this was all uh, uh, legal, you know, this was all okay. Um, Abdullah, he was not, again, he was not a pragmatist, he was not a politician, he didn't realize, or he didn't care that it would be much easier to, to, to find ways to excuse these actions. He, he was a legal purist. And so he was threatening this whole Sokoto project based on this idea of a return to Islamic orthodoxy by saying a lot of these things that happened weren't actually uh, correct in, in Islam. So, so again, this caused a lot of problems down the line for the legitimacy. All right. So then kind of the next stage of the Sokoto state is the death of Usman Danforio in 1817, and then the kind of succession of Muhammad Bello, one of his children. Uh, what are a few of the key reasons this succession was sort of somewhat controversial? Uh, and then why does it kind of give way to a second jihad from 1817 to 1821? Yeah, sure. So so again, we have to, and this is going to be a theme, you know, I think in a discussion, we have to go back in time, you know, to find out why hereditary succession was so controversial in, in Islam. And so, you know, Muawiyah, you know, way back in the 7th century, um, named his son Yazid as successor in Damascus, and this started the Umayyad dynasty. And for Muslim historians, this kind of brought an end to the period of rightly guided caliphs following um, uh, following Prophet Muhammad. Um, and so, when Bello claimed uh, to be the successor of his father um, in Sokoto, two weeks later, Abdullahi wrote a very long document in which he criticized the succession. Six weeks later, I think Bello wrote uh, a response. Not neither man kind of referenced the other and said, you know, what you're doing is wrong. And they both used actually the very same books of, of Abbasid uh, kind of legal manuals as each other. But you can see how they work with this material that they took very different positions, uh, not just on the succession itself, but on on the whole uh, attitude to Muslim history. Um, so for Abdullahi, the divisions of the Ummah started through hereditary succession. Whereas for Bello, you know, division of the Ummah was basically a result of disloyalty to the strong leaders that uh, emerged in his, in his view through God's will. And so if you were going to uh, rebel against the strongest candidate, then you're, you're going against God's will. Um, and so they looked to history to pick figures that they particularly respected. You know, Bello picked uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, you know, because he was so powerful and had all this territory. 
Abdullahi held up the example of Umar II. He was one of the later uh, Umayyad caliphs um, because he tried exactly because he tried to return things to how they'd been in the time of of of, of the rightly guarded caliphs. So while there was all of this um, kind of higher uh, intellectual discussion going on, there was complete confusion as to who actually was uh, ruler of Sokoto after Usman died, because both Bela and Abdullahi claimed to be Amir al-Mu'mineen in their correspondences with all sorts of people from the region who wanted to find out what happened. You know, and then at the same time, uh, you have uh, the Hausa who who feel that this is their chance to to return um, the power that they'd lost in, in 1804. And so there's this, between 1817 and 1821, there's what we might call a second jihad, as you said, um, where Bola has to suppress all of these uh, rebellions against him. So I think, I hope I answered your question. And then your, your final uh, chapter kind of examines the rest of Bellow's rule from 1821 to 1837. Um, and one topic that will probably be familiar um, to anyone who has sort of ever been to northern Nigeria, and that's kind of the process of houseification, which has sort of already um, come up a bit. But yeah, kind of if you can expand on kind of what houseification was and kind of why did Bellow undertake this as a strategy of rule? Yeah, so, so when we think about Sokoto today, we kind of associate it, uh, you know, with the Hausa region and the Hausa people of, of northern Nigeria. Um, but of course, it wasn't always like this. You know, Usman, Abdullahi, Bello, they, they were all um, identified as, as Fulani. Um, and uh, they criticized a lot of these uh, rituals of the Hausa court structure, uh, Hausa dress, uh, house of language and, and and wider aspects of the house of culture, which they sought to, to change during that 1804 jihad. But Bello reversed a lot of these decisions, brought back um, the house of court, brought uh, in, encouraged the use of the, the house of language, and house identity was literally replicated. You know, among the elites who had taken uh, house of wives, house of concubines uh, in the in that violent period. Of, of the jihad. So Bello's brother, who took over for him, from him, Atiku, uh, after he died, was, was Hausa. His mother was, was Hausa, so he was half Hausa himself. And so this process kind of just continued over the 19th century uh, until Hausa became equivalent to, I, I don't know, like a, a state or a national identity, um, despite the fact that the original movement had been predominantly uh, Fulani. So, you know, as to why this, this happened, I, I think it's because if you have this large um, court structure, uh, this gives you lots of opportunities for patronage to, to basically buy the loyalty of people, as we saw between 1817 and 1821, who rebelled because they wanted to take back uh, control. And so he was trying to buy the loyalty of the Hausa and, of course, of, of other powerful people, uh, kind of to integrate them into the, the, the Sokoto system. And to see how well that worked, it might be worth comparing with Gwandu, which is a town that Abdullahi ruled um, after the jihad, kind of semi-independently of, of Sokoto. And so he kept this very strict uh, Torobbe Fulani hierarchy. Fulfulde was the language of government. Uh, he did not uh, introduce any really outsiders from the wider population uh, into the government. And, and it's quite clear that Gwandu only controlled really Gwandu city, and it didn't really have much influence in the wider region because there were essentially no opportunities for non-Fulani to advance in this in this system. 
Another topic that you touch on is one that has been written about um, by other scholars of the Sokoto state, um, and that's slavery. So how did Bellow understand the practice of slavery and what policies did he put in place? Yeah, so in uh, Bellow wrote a ha- history of um, the Hausa region in Falcon Mysore, where he talks about uh, the different regions of Hausa land and different characteristics of the people and of the, the natural environment. And from this, although he doesn't make it explicit until some years later, from this, it's pretty clear that Bello considered uh, the regions to the south of the house estates, uh, often called the Banzabakwai or the, the, the false seven, in contrast to the to the house estates, uh, talking about areas such as Guari, such as Bauchi, to be enslavable, to be in, their inhabitants were natural resources to be to be extracted for the use of Muslims. And he makes this very clear uh, later on, but at the moment, you know, the house estates did the same thing. So essentially, he's just recycling uh, enslavement patterns that existed in the region uh, before the Fodiawa came to power. The difference was that he framed uh, the practice of slavery within this written uh, Islamic tradition of trying to categorize people into enslavable and non-enslavable um, groups based primarily on a geographic region. Because the assumption was that uh, they were Muslim or non-Muslim based on on where they lived, and so after 1821, when Bello's kind of rule was was assured and he had no, he didn't need to prove himself or cite any kind of authorities such as Ahmad Baba, whose fatwa had been very influential in the region for a long time, he said Ahmad Baba was wrong about Hausaland. Ahmad Baba had said that Hausaland was a land of Islam. Any captives from Hausaland or in fact, he named several places in Hausaland could not be, be legally enslaved. And so he said, look, this was written hundreds of years ago. Things have changed. I know the region more than he did. And he then dictates these groups in, in inside Sokoto's territories and on the borders of Sokoto who could be uh, enslaved. And so this information was passed directly to regional emirs uh, who would receive captives from outside of Sokoto's borders, and they also had to send captives every year as tribute to Sokoto. So th- this was a direct policy document, uh, which I think um, really has been overlooked in in uh, kind of setting enslavement patterns in Sokoto, which of course by the middle of the 19th century become, you know, one of the world's, if not the world's largest slave society. So... Um, and then sort of relevant to current tensions with sort of in uh, Nigerian politics, the early Sokoto state under Bello um, had policies that privileged populations that were sedentary at the expense of those populations that were nomadic. Um, so why was this and kind of how did Bello justify these policies? Yes, he, he definitely did uh, prioritize um urbanization, sedentarization, this was part of his vision of uh, an urban uh, Muslim society. Uh, and, and just, you know, so the, we're talking about the, the nomadic groups in the region, we're talking about Tuareg and uh, the nomadic um, Fulani. And, and his policy between these two groups was, was very different indeed, partly because he himself was Fulani, but also because, um, you know, during the original 1804 jihad, the Tuareg uh, kind of vacillated between supporting the jihad and supporting the jihad's opponents, whereas the Fulani were, were very much uh, on, on um, the Fodiawa's side. And so, you know, Bello considered nomadism a threat, a direct threat to this society he had in mind for Sokoto. But for the Tuareg, had to be 
their nomadism was was unacceptable for Bello, and they had to be excluded from the Sokoto project. So he, from very early on, he portrayed them as treacherous, as immoral, you know, inherently a kind of foreign people who had to be controlled through through violence and, and pushed out of of Sokoto's borders. Um, and then the Fulani, uh, you know, Bello kind of tried to to integrate them very early on through programs to sedentarize them, to move them to these new. Uh, kind of fortress cities he was building on the outskirts of Sokoto and also to educate them. He, he, he very much tried to, to uh, standardize uh, education, Muslim education during this period. And there's many reasons for this. I mean, aside from his uh, responsibilities, perhaps paternalistic responsibilities to educate uh, his people, it was also very pragmatic. You know, urban centers are directly controlled by uh, himself or his family members. They're much easier to control. They're much easier to defend. Uh, it's much easier to, uh, when you move away from the clan structure of the nomadic Fulani, it's much easier to control uh, his citizens. So I think it was, it was again, to try to avoid the rebellions that had faced him before and, and, and really as a means of social control. Now, while the bulk of the book um, is concerned with the textual production surrounding the early years of the Sokoto state, you know, as we've been talking, uh, you're also clearly interested in the afterlife of these texts, um, particularly in terms of the politics of this history. So how have political concerns at different moments written or perhaps rewritten the early history of the Sokoto state? Or kind of another way of putting this is kind of how have different historical actors used or perhaps misused um, this history? Yeah, no, thank you. That's good. Yeah, it's, it's a good, important point that I hope is, is made clearly in the book is that it is not so much a, a divergence of, of interpretations of Sokoto history, but if you look over about 200 years of engagement with the writings of, of the Fodiawa, there's this creation uh, very early on of an official Sokoto history that that evolves and is strengthened uh, uh, over time. And they very quickly became disconnected from the context in which these manuscripts are written, which, you know, was one. The reason why there's so much written material from Sokoto was because there was so much disagreement uh, about the correct way to to govern uh, Muslim society and disagreement between the Fodiawa on a personal level. That's why there's so much writing. But from very, very early on, these manuscripts were used to create an official history of, of Sokoto. And whether we're talking about uh, the later generations of the Sokoto elite that ruled after Bello, whether we're talking about the British colonial authorities, whether we're talking about um, early nationalist uh, Nigerian politicians, they all had the same aim in mind, was basically to aggrandize the early history of Sokoto, emphasize the unity and the good governance of the Fodiawa in order to justify the hereditary rule of the Sokoto elite, uh, or of the British who ruled through them, or Nigerian politicians uh, such as uh, Ahmed Bello, uh, Bello's great grandson, who who, um, who wanted to use this legacy uh, on the basis, you know, to, for to further his own claims to to lead the region uh, into independence. Mm-hmm. And even too, you mentioned there's also sort of anti-Sufi groups like Zala have kind of made reference, as well as even Boko Haram, sort of more recently. I mean, how have they kind of connected to this history as well. Yeah, they have, because it's 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 interesting to see, you know, through history that Boko Haram, you know, is also trying to overthrow uh, the current Nigerian government. 
They also claim that this government is, is non-Muslim. They also claim that good Muslims should follow them in order to overthrow this, this government. But they are really taking from, from a kind of global jihadi Salafi lens rather than through a Qadri Sufi lens, you know. So the, in that respect, they're very different, but the basic narrative uh, is, is the same, I would say. And so there are, everybody tries to interpret um, you know, the past in a way that suits their present. It's, it's normal to see that, and it's not surprising um, to see Boko Haram and other groups use this, um, this legacy. Related to this, I know that a side interest of yours is sort of how the legacy of the Sokoto Caliphate has been taken up by Muslim groups in the Americas as well as Europe. Um, so what is the history of this history outside of Nigeria and West Africa? Yeah, so it's, it was been very interesting when I moved to uh, temporarily to, to the States to do my uh, to do my um, my research to the book. I found that there was a, a community of Muslims in Pittsburgh called the Nura Zaman, who were actually uh, translating and teaching forty-hour texts uh, in the community and also in the U.S. prison system. Not the same texts that I'm using in my book. These are mostly uh, you know Sufi texts, spiritual texts, guide to to praying and doing all of the, the basic rituals of, of Islam correctly. Um, but it, it's interesting because they had also read Mervyn Hiskit's The Sword of Truth, which is a kind of popular history of the jihad. And it, it's easy to see why this kind of blend of social reform, spiritual renewal, and a, a connection to Africa would appeal to, to various groups um, around the world. And so many of the members of this group had been members of the Nation of Islam, but they were looking for a, a spiritual rather than a political um, dimension to the faith, and also, you know, a, a connection to the African continent that was continent that was was noble, and it was not connected to to the slave trade and, and any of the other, you know, terrible things that happened in the past. And so they 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 took this this uh, you know this very interesting um, perspective. Uh, that's one example. Um, the other, I think, the other one I talk about in the book is in the Russian Federation. I'm less. I'm less, I know less about this example, but in this case, it is very interesting because it's, it's the opposite phenomenon. So it's essentially mostly white Russian converts to, to Islam who have actually adopted Maliki law, which is used in West Africa and made connections with all sorts of groups in South Africa and also in, in, um, in West Africa uh, to distance themselves from Muslims who are from the Caucasus and from Central Asia who are established in Russia. So it's it's an attempt. The first attempt is an attempt to find a kind of an identity um, in the U.S. And the second attempt is you know taking Usman as a, as an othering factor to, to to move yourself apart from other Muslims. So it's very interesting to see these these two dynamics that I'd love I'd like to to research more. Right. Now that we've sort of gone through the book, uh, could you reflect on what you see as the key interventions your research makes in Sokoto studies? So I, I really hope that my book um, has shown how Sokoto studies can be brought out of a, this very narrow frame of reference that speaks only to present day Nigeria and how it's it's really connected to this this very wide, uh, very dynamic West African discursive space that was was occurring all across the region. So just in, you know, my work with the Hill Museum, uh, we have uh, we keep coming across Fodiawa texts in Timbuktu that were copied, you know, only a year or two after Usman or wrote them in in Hausaland. And so there's the much wider conversation going on that is not just about the future uh, northern Nigeria, but uh, you, you know. It, 
I would really like to see an end to um, it, it being parceled off into a national history rather than a rather than a regional history. Um, so that, that's one point. And I, I also wanted to show how we can engage differently with these writings, not just from the Fodiawa, but any kind of, of this manuscript heritage of, of West Africa. And so not using them to add to this already um, oversaturated narrative about the chronology of, of the early history of this of, of Sokoto in this case, but saying, you know, look, these these manuscripts are, are unreliable as historical sources. You know, they're, they're the history of the victor. But what you know, what what can they tell us? How can they be useful? Well, they're, they're written to legitimize political and intellectual projects. So uh, I think that they can tell us what legitimacy meant in the 19th century Sahel and how it could be won, how it could be lost, how it evolved over time. And so. Yes, the history of Sokoto is is unique uh, and it's influenced by the local setting, but these writings engage with with much larger ideas that can help us understand political change uh, across different Muslim societies in the world. I'm also wondering if you might uh, reflect a bit on your methods. Um, So how did you identify your sources? Uh, What are the different ways that you use them and kind of how did you go about sort of organizing them into a coherent narrative. So basically, yeah, I'm curious about kind of what the actual method looked like. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the process. Yeah, I mean, it just involves, uh, you know, looking into, the, you know, Brill has this series, um, Arabic Literature of Africa, and John Hunwick and others have, have done a, a really amazing job at, at cataloging um, all of the Excel manuscript copies. I mean, through my job, I've, I've found some more, but um, it's pretty extensive. And so it... I needed to look at those manuscripts that I thought would uh, be relevant to the, these discourses of legitimation and the, the evolving discourse over time, and uh, try to follow in a chronological way how these arguments and how these discourses change. And so some of these uh, manuscripts have dates, others can be assumed by by context. And, and, and as you start to identify the dates of some of them, you know, the rest of them kind of come together. So we have, I have a reasonably confident uh, um, chronology now of, of these writings. And so the chapters of my book were really imposed by the manuscripts themselves and and, and the, the discourse of dissent, the discourse of moderation, you know, other terms that I use in the books were really an attempt to group these manuscripts and the arguments within them together over the chronological period. And so in, in that way, it kind of wrote itself, um, at least the structure part. I'm also curious if you might kind of share what some of the challenges were, you know, of doing this type of work, um, particularly in terms of source analysis or sort of simply tracking down the actual copies of some of these sources. Yes, tracking down uh, the copies of them were, was was quite difficult. Uh, you know, much easier than it would have been, uh, you know, a few decades ago. Um, you know, thanks to this really kind of explosion of of um, cataloging of of um, recently, more recently, of digitization. Um, I did spend several months in, in Niger working with the National Archives there. Um, because of funding and also because of security issues, I couldn't travel to really to, to northern Nigeria, the places that I wanted to go to get some copies that did not exist in other places. And so I just had to shut off those conversations in my book because I didn't have the manuscript material. But that only happened, there were only kind of two or three that I really wanted to get and, uh, and couldn't find. You know, as for the analysis, you know, nobody had really worked with uh, the manuscripts in this way of 
you're not just extracting um, bits of information to use in your narrative, but really to, to, to appreciate it as a whole document that had an audience, that had a context that was being talked and debated and written about um, uh, by contemporaries. And so it, it, it took a lot of patience to just sit down with these documents and, and try to imagine uh, you know, all of this context and uh, having to really kind of block out a lot of what I'd read about the historiography of, of Sokodo, trying to return to, to, um, to that context. Um, so this work will get easier with digitization, but then that also brings up uh, the question of, of uh, I mean, it brings, for me, that brings up a lot of different issues. Uh, you know, if these collections are all digitized, you know, my, my book was, was, far richer and far more, uh, you know, just personally more fulfilling because I, I did travel to Niger and other places and, and talked to, to scholars. And I, I'm just worried that if these manuscripts are available in your living room, all of these conversations uh, between, you know, between Western scholars and between African scholars will, will not happen. So I'm, I'm also a bit cautious about, um, about the future of, of opening up all this heritage. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Naylor, uh, we've taken up enough of your time, but before we end, I'd like to ask you one more question. Um, and that's kind of what you're working on currently, or also kind of where do you see Sokoto studies kind of going in the future? Yeah, so um, I, as you mentioned at the beginning, I work for the Hill Museum Manuscript Library, and I'm in the process with my colleague Ali Jakite of cataloging um, digitized manuscripts from around 26 family libraries in Timbuktu. So this will be over 250,000, maybe 300,000 uh, items. So this is going to keep me busy for, for quite a long time. Um, I'm also translating uh, some of the 40-hour texts that I didn't um, cover in, in my book. So I just had a piece out in Islamic Africa recently about uh, Muhammad Bello's curriculum of study, a book where he mentions all of his teachers, all of the works that he studied with them and, and that hadn't been translated or, or, or made as a critical edition um, so far. Um, and I'm also translating a series of fawaid or kind of uh, recipes for popular medicine um, for a, a, it's called the Maktaba project. So this is gonna showcase a number of manuscripts from the Northwestern University's Herskovitz Library and also the collection at UIUC for students to use in the classroom. So it will be a, the manuscript itself, an English translation and all sorts of, of points to help students uh, understand these texts directly. So that's what definitely I'd like to do more of uh, going forward. So that it's not just me, you know, reading this stuff, that it's available for to a much wider audience. Well, that all sounds really interesting. Uh, thanks so much for doing the interview. Sure. Yeah, anytime.